Hi, I'm Susan Freeman. Welcome back to our Property She podcast series, where I get to interview some of the key influencers in the incredible world of real estate. Today, I'm really delighted to welcome Savannah de Savary, founder and CEO of Built ID, an online platform that aims to showcase the real estate projects of today and transform community engagement to better shape the projects of tomorrow. The Property She podcast is brought to you by Mishkondorea in association with the London Real Estate Forum. Please make sure you check out our Property She website on mishcon.com slash property she for all our interviews and program notes. The podcasts are also available to download on your Apple podcast app, on Spotify and whatever podcast app you use. And please continue to let us have your feedback and reviews and importantly, your suggestions for future guests. Savannah has achieved a lot in a very short time. After graduating from Oxford University in 2013, she joined Thor Equities, where she managed their New York development projects. In 2015, she founded her new company, Built ID, uh, which aimed to connect architects and consultants with potential clients in an online hub. Savannah went about building what she describes as the Shazam of property. Savannah has already won numerous awards, including Young Entrepreneur of the Year at the Property Week Awards and was voted one of Property Week's Power 100 Top 20 Ones to Watch. She's also one of the Top 20 PropTech Influencers in a poll by the UK PropTech Association. So now we'll get a chance to hear from Savannah on how all this has been achieved, her thoughts on the real estate sector and her plans for the future. Savannah, it's fantastic to have you in the studio today. It seems a long time since we, we met when you embarked on the Pi Labs pre-seed programme when your company was really just um, an idea. Can you tell us about the company, um, when it was founded and why and what your goal is? Gosh, it was a long time ago, wasn't it? It was right at the beginning of the journey, which is, uh, yeah, it's been an exciting one. So I founded Built ID back in 2015. Um, I was working in property in New York. I grew really quite frustrated at how archaic everything was done, um, how it wasn't it wasn't an efficient industry. And it really was an old boys club. Um, and I think the frustration there led me to start the company rather than any particular desire to become an entrepreneur or to become a business owner. Um, I think that thinking you can be your own boss is, I found out, um, a falsehood. <laughs> um, but really, I didn't even know PropTech existed. And back then was when the conversations were still happening of what is PropTech rather than what PropTech is useful for my company. Um, so it's evolved a lot since then. But that really was the origin was just growing frustrated and deciding I wanted to do something about it. And what was the idea? Because I know you had you, you had this idea and then you, you went about you know, just making it reality. What, what was the basic idea you started with? Yeah, so the original vision, which really remains something I want to achieve, was to try and make it so that anywhere you go, you can instantly find out who the creative talent is behind the built, built environment. So whatever market, whatever sector in it, um, you can instantly discover who's the architect, who's the engineer, who's the developers who are making things happen and have the sort of reputation, the track record um, that you can really pay attention to. I think that to start with, the idea was very different to what it is today. When I first conceived it, um, I saw it more of sort of a trip advisor, which I very quickly, once I started my due diligence talking of architects and designers, etc., realised was not going to be the most popular idea. Um, but that underlying desire to have everyone's track record showcased and transparent um, remains a driving force behind the company. When you started off, 
how much um, initial investment did you need for the company and, and how did you go about raising that money? So to start with, I, I needed nothing. All I needed really was the amazing support I received from my colleagues at work. There was an executive vice president at Thor Equities where I worked who was incredibly supportive and really encouraged me to pursue it in my spare time. So all I needed was really the the tools that you know the web gives you to learn to prototype, to learn to use these online programs and the gumption to do it in my spare time. It reached a point where um, I'd come, I'd fully evolved the idea and I'd, I'd spoken of enough people to really hone exactly how we could solve that problem rather than I didn't start by focusing on what the solution would be. I really started on that problem, which is why I evolved very quickly away from TripAdvisor style as the solution. I was lucky to have an amazing female mentor in, in New York property who I had dinner with and, and told her about my idea and showed her what I'd done. And she said, if you can build a proper working prototype, I'll invest and I think my, my boss would invest as well. So I received a couple of hundred thousand in seed money from them and a bit from friends and family. And um, that's really where it started from. It's interesting. And and how come you you chose to start it in London rather than New York? So there were a few factors. One was I was ready to move home, I think. Another was that uh, chance, really chance. I had a meeting with someone called John Asale, who runs Asale Architecture. And he said, I love it. I love your vision and where you think you can take it. Here's the AJ100. I know partners at nearly all of these practices and I'm happy to introduce you to them. So it really started that I was having a huge amount of, you know, on the phone meetings at Lord knows what hour in the UK while based in New York. And then I met PyLabs and they were encouraging me to come join their accelerator. And it lined up with, with where I wanted to see myself building the company. You've been working in, um, in real estate in New York. Did you find the UK real estate sector uh, any, any different? Were there any surprises? Yes, I think it's more diverse in a, in a, in a good way. Um, not in terms necessarily gender or ethnicity wise, but actually in terms of the players you have in the market. New York has a few very big players who tend to dominate in the Manhattan market especially, whilst in London you do have a wider range of, of players engaging in, in development in the London market. And that was quite exciting for us because obviously you want a wide um, client base. And also community engagement is more important here than in New York where you have community boards and it's really only those elite few whose, whose opinions are heard. And in terms of the prop tech scene, you know, is it similar in New York? Because it, there, there seems mm. to be a lot of interaction between New York and UK PropTech, but I, I, it, it, interesting to know from somebody who's been there what the differences are. Yeah, so when I was there, like, like I mentioned, I wasn't really even aware of PropTech. I, I mean, my company, and we're one of the, you know, the really big developers there, I'm ashamed to admit we didn't really engage with it at all. This was back in 2015, where it was really more, you know, this, this new wave of prop tech that we're now involved in um, was really in its infancy. So, no, I wasn't particularly involved back then. But more recently, I've gone back out and there's these amazing groups there, like um, a women in prop tech group, which has now been launched in London as well. Everyone was engaged. The people that turned up were from such a diverse range of the industry, um, whether it was design, consultancy, the big agencies, developers. Um, it felt like it was being embraced there on a very similar level to in London. So it's really exciting to be involved in something really uh, at the start. So you have now gone in a slightly different direction, I think, from anticipated, and you've launched Give My View, which uh, is your new digital tool, which gives communities a voice in planning decisions. So how does that how does that work, and how far have you got with it? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because I remember when I when I first raised my proper seed round, Nick Leslaw, who's one of our investors, said, "You're at A. I have full confidence you're going to get to B, but you think you're going to get in a straight line. You're not. You're going to zigzag back and forth to get there." And I remember nodding and thinking, "No, I." 
won't. I'll be the exception to the, you know, entrepreneur rule who doesn't do that. And it wasn't the case. You know, Give My View really came from, on one side, needing to monetize and in a way that didn't compromise the growth of our database. So with Give My View, a developer and their team's track record is showcased to the community. And that's something we see our um, community members spending a lot of time clicking through to and engaging with. Um, so that continues to grow without us having to monetize it and therefore limit how fast it grows and at the same time we get to do something which i think is incredibly needed and important for the industry and more widely actually for community engagement i think is only going to come more important and we're excited that you know we're getting involved at such an early point and as you know i'm particularly thrilled that the idea came out of a roundtable debate that we hosted at Mishkondorea with Estates Gazette on the power of partnerships and um, and collaboration. Are you, can you talk a little bit about the thought process that came out of that? I can, yeah. So that was a couple of years ago. So this really has been a long time in the thinking. So we obviously you go in stealth mode for a long time and you finally announce it and people think, oh, that seems like a bit of a pivot. But actually it's been a long time trying to ascertain how we can monetize, like I said, without compromising the growth of our database and equally how what the real challenges are in the industry. And I remember one of the developers who was at that round table saying, we struggle so much with community engagement. We want to do better. We want to be better. What tools are there out there? And everyone sort of turned to look at me as the, you know, the prop techer at the table. And I went, I will look into it for you. I honestly haven't heard of any great ones. And I went, I did a lot of research and there, there, are, there are definitely platforms out there, but there didn't seem to be anything that I felt really hit the mark enough that I would take it back to him and say, this is what you should use. And that's really where, yeah, the idea came from was that round table. And after that, I just, I don't know if it's because I was hyper aware of it, but I just kept hearing it everywhere. Every round table discussion I went to, I'm lucky that, you know, I get to often sit on sit on panels or, or attend these round table discussions where I'm sort of far out of my league in terms of who I'm amongst. And hearing that from the very top of, you know, organisations trickling down, everyone is frustrated by community engagement really was the, the origins of it. So you've launched, can you, can you tell us who you've got signed up, what you've got started on? I can certainly tell you a, a few names. So um, we're working with a very diverse range of, of clients from developers like Grosvenor and First Base to councils like RBKC in the City of London, affordable housing providers like LNQ. We're working with house builders like Red Row. So it really is quite quite a diverse range of, of clients to be working with and making sure that it, it works for everyone. It's really important to us that this is something that councils love as much as developers. And how does it work? Because I know you've described the app as, as gamifying the mm-hmm. way local people can interact with the um, with the developer. But but how how do they actually go about doing it? Is it is it easy? Yeah, so it's a web app so that you could use it from the local library or community centre. That was really important to us that we didn't have barriers to entry. Our sort of um, launch launch products show that most people do use it on smartphones or on tablets. But we didn't want it to have to be something that you download. So you use it online, but you reach you, you're sort of reached through your social media accounts is how we tell people about it, as well as sort of flyering in the traditional methods. So the idea is the first core part of it is education, actually stopping the spread of misinformation by having an engaging, clear way that people can see your time frame, your the complex policy framework you're working within, the facts around your project, what is up for debate and what actually has to go ahead if this scheme is to be viable. And being able to communicate that in a visual way without you know strip free of all the jargon is important and that's something that we focus on a lot is the user interface and the user experience to be able to communicate that and the second part is then giving people a real sense of ownership over the process 
So they can vote on key aspects of the scheme, whether it's at the very early stage about what are your concerns, what are your priorities, what do you actually need in your local area, or whether it's getting more specific as the project evolves and saying, um, you know, what sort of housing mix do you want? What do you want to see here? Um, do you want at the outside to have a playground or a water feature? We don't have space for both. How would you spend that budget allocation and that space allocation if it was up to you? And then having front and centre seeing those influence decisions. And we gamify it by the more you engage, regardless of what you say, the more you engage, the more points you get. And these then translate into donations from the developer or the council to local charities and initiatives. And the idea is it's hyper-local. We have one where it's the local state school so that they can have um, music lessons for the kids. We have one in an area where there's um, rough sleeping, where it's a homeless shelter and trying to improve that, you know, that sort of problem in the local community. And I think it's I think it's important that you incentivize people in a way that enables developers to give back today, that even if you're part of generation rent and you're not going to be living there in you know, five, 10 years time when this scheme is finished, you get to see how it's impacting your engagement is impacting the community tomorrow. It's brilliant because it, it, it actually is constructive criticism. So rather than having people in a in a sort of local hall yelling that they don't like yeah. developers and they don't want the development, they actually are sort of pushed into saying what they what they would like. And presumably you also capture the people the working people, the busy people who normally wouldn't have a chance. So you would normally just hear from the retired people that haven't got you know anything very much else to do exactly we get a lot of traction with younger demographics that's a big part of our audience and also we've um, designed it to go left to right or right to left so we have clients right now who are translating it into Urdu Lithuanian Bengali we really have a wide range of of audiences that are going to be able to engage with this which is quite exciting it's interesting and then how does that feed into the planning process does the developer feed that through with the with the application and the results to the local authority yes absolutely and we're lucky so far that councillors um, seem to be really excited about it and embracing it so how seriously it's taken seems to be um, quite significant especially as local councils are using it themselves I think that will help us hone the product to make sure that we deliver the results and the evidence in a way that makes sense for the councils and that enables them to you know make a better informed decision be able to better see what the community cares about and what their concerns are because it's not all about the positive you know we had a scheme that went live recently and overwhelmingly people voted that pollution was their biggest concern for the local environment and now the developer knows to put front and and center their sort of green initiatives their sustainability on the scheme actually how do we rethink planning um planning for traffic you know they're thinking of pedestrianizing a street and so the community wasn't just funneled into having to say what they want they were also able to express what they didn't like in the current situation so that the developer could help improve that local environment. So presumably the plan is to sign up more developers and and, and local authorities and just expand the platform. Absolutely, yes. And we're getting we're getting a really diverse range of interest from a rugby club who wants to use us for their community engagement to um, we're talking with NGOs about being used in places as diverse as Afghanistan to try and, you know, get the youth there who are feeling very disenfranchised and disaffected to engage in how foreign government aid money is spent on community centres, on initiatives for them, etc. Let them have a sense of agency and ownership because everyone needs that. I don't think it's just a, a problem in property development planning process. I think engaging in all sort of infrastructure investments in your community is important. 
interesting. I think Nick Leslaw could be right. You could be zigzagging in all sorts of interesting directions. Absolutely. Once, once. And I, I, hate to, I hate to ever, ever say you were right and I was wrong. But in this case, he absolutely was right. And the more we delve into it, the more exciting it becomes. And it's great that we've managed to, to go in a direction that still lets our, our core vision evolve. You know, we're getting more projects on there all the time because of this, which enables us to ultimately say, whatever market you enter, we can tell you who's behind it, who's behind that, um, that built environment. But I think, yeah, the more we evolve the community engagement offering, the more passionate I become about how much we can give back and how important this can be for improving the, you know, the property industry in general and, and wider. So just changing the subject slightly, at um, a recent Movers and Shakers breakfast, um, you said very perceptively, uh, in real estate, who you know is what you know. So how, how has that become apparent to you? I think that became apparent very early on in, in my career when I think that the first pivotal moment I can think of is I was working on a development and someone said, I want to know who works with Google. I want to be able to attract a, a anchor tenant to this to this scheme like Google. So who works with them? Who is their go-to architect? And I said, oh, well, um, where do I go to find that out? And this really was you know behind the origins of Belt ID. And they said, you call up Bob at JLL and Bob will know so-and-so and they'll know so-and-so. And then ultimately that's how you find it out is, is through your little black book and you may not have one yet but don't worry we do and I just thought this is this is so archaic that it depends on your little black book and to get in anywhere and you find it all the time not just in in terms of finding you know sourcing consultants because then it means often the most talented innovative consultants who are up and coming and creative don't have an opportunity because they don't have those connections and that's that's something I'm really passionate about trying to solve with Built ID um, but you also find it more wider whether it's people you know we're trying to get more diversity into the industry but when who you know plays a role in what sort of interviews you get I think that's also problematic and um, is there anything we can do about that I think PropTech is is working very hard to try and improve that. I think you have initiatives like BAME and Property, which is trying to improve on more of that, getting more diverse talents into the industry. Um, And I think that the more developers and and the industry more widely comes around to um, sharing data and that you don't have to be so um, possessive of it, the more we'll be able to get transparency. And that does lead to that little black book becoming less important. It has to be said that you are you are unusual because I think 20% of tech founders are female. And uh, if you couple that with the real estate sector, where I think only 15% of um, property and construction are women, that, that makes you sort of quite, quite unusual. Do you... Do you find that you're treated any differently as a woman? I think it's hard to say because I've 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 never had the luxury of of being in the industry as a man. <laughs> um, however, Good I think I think it's it's all about mindset. I think if you walk into that room, even though it's going to be full of let's be honest, you know, sort of older white men most of the time, and feel like that you've you, you deserve to be there as much as anyone else, then you can ignore all of that. But I think that's quite easy for me to say as even though I'm a woman I'm you know a white woman from a privileged background I think there's a lot of people who have incredible ideas that could transform this industry for the better who don't feel like they can walk into that room still and I think that's a challenge and it's one that we can only solve by firstly all these great initiatives that are out there to try and improve diversity but also by shouting about how great it can be how you can make a difference how you can make inroads into this very traditional undiverse industry. So confidence is important. You have to have the confidence to walk into that room and uh, not feel like an imposter. Or at least fake the confidence. Mm. I'm a big believer in that. (laughs) 
fake it until you make it. Exactly. Um, yeah, so acting is also uh, a useful a useful attribute. But do you think it's uh, an issue for women raising money for, for a business? Because there was some recent research that said for every one pound of VC investment, less than one P goes to all female teams, which is fairly appalling. Yeah, I must admit fundraising is my least favourite thing. I'm very bad at asking for money. I'm bad at, you know, it's it's your baby and putting yourself out there that way I find very difficult. Um, I can't tell you how many coffees I've been to where I'm hoping to be like, and are you interested in investing? And I leave being like, thank you so much for your advice. Um, (laughs) Lovely to meet you. And I've never even asked. I really, really struggle. I don't know if that's because I'm a woman or just because of my, I'm actually quite introverted, but certainly it's, it's hell. Fundraising is just as bad as I thought it would be and worse. So if anyone wants to invest, please uh, come my way. <laughs> and do you think that VC investors should apply diversity quotas? Should, should, should there be anything in place that um, sort of makes it easier for women or, or does one just have to get through it? No, I don't think they should because I think that they should invest in what they think are the best companies. And I wouldn't want to ever think that um, or anyone else to think that my company has received investment because I'm a woman rather than because of its own merits. I think the only way it changes is by more diversity in the VC world. Mm. If you have more women sitting the other side of that table, it becomes easier. I mean, you hear these horror stories of women who are, have developed female-centric products, whether it's to help with breastfeeding or innovations in other areas that are you know, particular to women. Um, you go into a room with these all-male VCs and they're uncomfortable, firstly. And secondly, they don't really necessarily understand the full, um, the full potential of the product. So if you have a more diverse panel the other side of that table, and that goes both ethnically and gender-wise, you're going to have a better response to, to you know, more diverse founders. Because I think women do present things differently i notice it all the time when i'm um, interviewing is that you we're doing something new so no one really is qualified for the jobs we're hiring for and you have men who know full well they're not qualified and they come and they put it out there anyway and then you have women who are so overqualified who are there and they're like you can tell they're not really sure and they don't think they're enough and it does make a difference and i have to remind myself sometimes you have to take them differently in interviews because their skill doesn't reflect in in their own self-belief in it and you can't you can't say everyone's the same and I think if you have more diverse people I'm rambling but I'm very passionate about it the other side of the table you're more likely to say okay maybe she doesn't present this with as much confidence as that male founder did but actually her idea is fundamentally better and that IP is stronger and I think that's that's the only way it changes. Do you do you come across what they call queen bee syndrome? Because the assumption always is that if you have women in positions of power, they are going to help other women come through. But you sometimes get completely the opposite, where where, where women want to be the queen bee and they don't necessarily want to help other women through. I'm like I haven't at all. I mean, I think my most valuable relationships in the industry I would put you amongst the the top three to be honest because you're a woman who is already very successful and you just want to help other people out and maybe not just women but I certainly feel like I'm surrounded by amazing women like you who just want to support and uh, and we celebrate each other's successes and and we're there for each other I found that the and this is something I really think we should shout more about is that the women there may not be many of us but the women who are in property and prop tech are incredibly supportive and promote each other and I love it. Yeah. So I think that it's a great industry for women to join. And I think that whilst it has a depressingly long way to go, we shouldn't emphasize that over the fact that I haven't I'm yet to meet a queen bee in that sense in this industry. OK, well, I thank you. And I hope I hope you won't meet one. And what did you think about the um, the 10 year 
time horizon that Sam McClary mentioned yesterday for gender balance in the um, in the property sector? I think it was a good point, and I think it may seem frighteningly far out, but I think what she meant was that you already have better gender diversity at the lower ranks in companies, and in ten years' time, those will be the people that are you know rising up to be in management. And I think that that's why we'll see that change, even if we don't get better, just the, the progress we've already made with more women coming into the industry will trickle up to the top, hopefully. Since you're somebody that's involved in the tech world and the property world, do you see a language gap between the two the two sectors? And is it something that's, that's an issue? Definitely there's a language gap. I think also we're still at the stage where prop tech is new enough that a lot of your role has to be education. Someone will want to make a little tweak to your product and you have to explain that's not a little tweak, that's a lot of code that needs to be changed to, to make that change. And actually, will it improve the product for you enough to, to justify that change? Um, and I think that education piece is important. That language gap, to be honest, it exists even if I'm not a technical founder and my sort of... Um, chief technical officer is constantly having to educate me and what's important is just that you're you're learning constantly and you're open to it and you want to to understand better and I think you see that a lot in at least the clients we work with you see them wanting to understand how the technology works better and and they often say I appreciate there's a lot of complex stuff going behind there but what I like is the fact that the back end I have to look at is incredibly simple and intuitive and I think that's our responsibility is as prop tech founders is to make sure what our clients see isn't the complex tech it should feel as simple as possible and do you see that there is now sort of more of a an effort to marry the problems and the pain points in real estate with the potential tech solutions rather than everybody just saying oh we've got to adopt tech because everybody's adopting tech I hope so I'm not sure I think we're still in that risk stage where there's a lot of people who have good ideas for solutions but they haven't maybe thought through is it a big enough problem and I think that's something that we all fall into that trap at times and I think that sometimes property property companies can as well and so that's a really cool solution yes I want to embrace it yes I want to adopt it and then they're quite far down the line and have, and have spent up a lot of the startups time before they realize it's not a big enough problem it's solving to justify even the time investment of implementing this it's a problem for people and and, and also with the many many startups that there are you know people with an idea that they've not necessarily had the opportunity to test on a real estate company to see whether it actually is the um, the solution that the company needs absolutely and I think the best decision I've made is making our product project focused so that you can just try it on one project before you scale it out across your portfolio I think that's really important Um, and you do have startups that immediately you don't you don't need to work like that like land insight is a great example of someone trying to get rid of that little black book by off-market land anyone can have access to anyone can see what opportunities there are out there um so there are exceptions to the rule but broadly speaking i think if you can if you can trial something on just one project there's much more of a chance of it being successfully implemented and one of the things that seems to concern people is data collection now obviously for all the people trying to Uh, make the way we transact real estate more efficient data collection is something that's really uh, important so right through the life cycle Mm. of uh, of real estate do you think that um, the real estate sector is ready yet to to share data or are people still concerned that they're giving away valuable ip and it's not something that they should just give away 
I think, unfortunately, the latter. People are still very, very concerned and possessive about around their data. However, I think they should be ready to share it because the efficiencies and, and the ability for everyone to make more money if you do so are huge. Um, so, no, I think frustratingly, the answer is they're not ready, but they should be. Should we actually be concerned that our smart buildings will know so much about us? Because we see data being collected um, everywhere. So, you know, in China, it's by the state. In Europe, it tends to be by private companies. And should we be concerned that there's, there's, there's just too much data available on us everywhere? I want to say no, but um, I was I was at sort of a tech forum where someone from New York, who I think they've been invested in by Sidewalk Labs, I could be wrong, but mm. um, the sort of data they can collect on you on the street, on your you know f- facial recognition and and how you're responding to different ads and what your interests are from from reading your your facial expressions, it was terrifying. I think there's no doubt that it has the potential to be terrifying. I was re- I was reading a book um, the other week, which was maybe ten years old, and it was meant to be the sort of creepy thriller vibe of. The- that they have this house which is architecturally it's monitoring everything about you and it has all these sensors and it's and it's meant to be this very controlling environment and I thought that's kind of just our office place of today that's really interesting that this was seen as some sort of you know sort of dystopian creepy idea and actually now it is reality and it has a lot of benefits for sustainability I think Bloomberg's HQ you know is genius in terms of improving efficiency by having more more data to, to monitor how people use the space but I think it can go too far and I think that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. I personally don't need them to know exactly when I've arrived in the parking lot and I'm going into the building to be able to pick up my coffee um, and to know when I've left my seat and how long I've spent in the bathroom. I appreciate the benefits of that. But as an employee, I think I'd feel a bit violated by it. So it's a, it's a tough one. People could argue very strongly in the other direction as well, though. So do you get any time off? I actually took my first my first proper holiday in a very very in, in years probably um, a few weeks back and my team all laughed at me because I spent it doing a horseback trek across Jordan across the desert so it was not particularly relaxing um, and it turns out I really can't pitch a tent that was a uh, quite a challenge and I also really really can't you know use nature as, as a bathroom the whole thing was was quite traumatic but in- incredible because it meant I actually had to switch off because you're constantly busy and I loved it so to anyone out there who finds holidays like lying on a beach more stressful and you're than, than relaxing and you're constantly checking your emails i recommend going on a trek but on, on a horse on, on a horse on your feet um i tend to i tend to when i'm around sporty people which i am not be like yeah i went on a trek and miss out the fact that i wasn't using my own legs but no my legs can barely walk to the tube never mind across the desert and and how long did you manage to take off for this holiday i did nine days um, however, it turns out you do have perfect signal in the desert. And uh, my team were very disheartened to learn that I was constantly emailing and slacking and calling them. Um, I think they were kind of hoping I'd be off the grid for their own benefit. I'm not sure that qualifies as a holiday if you're actually in contact <laughs> the whole time. It was a very well-behaved horse. So how would, how would people describe you in, in one word if they were talking about Savannah? Oh, people in my own company or people outside of it? Well, are there differences? I think I think there probably are differences. Probably um, passionate. I think people in my company would say I'm passionate. I love what I do. I'm obsessed with what I do. And, and I look for that in everyone I hire. So we all share that common thread, um, that common sort of drive. I don't know. I don't know. How what, how would you describe me? Intense? Hmm. <laughs> Intense, enthusiastic, intelligent, confident. 
Oh, I'll take those. I'll take you. those. Yeah. I was I was going to say loud, um, <laughs> so I'm glad you went for those because I was going to say incredibly loud. Well, I think the loud goes with the confidence, so it's um it's it's fine. Has anybody been a role model? or inspiration to you as you've gone through the journey so far yeah absolutely and um I'm always scared of, of scared of sort of naming names because in one of my first ever interviews um I was quite nervous and I talk fast on a good day never mind on a bad day and I went to say Cheryl Sandberg but I obviously must have muttered a bit because when it got written up in a you know a magazine where it can't be changed um they'd written I can't remember what they said, but someone else, Sandberg. And I, I emailed them and I said, look, like, I don't know who this, this person is. That's not who I said was my role model. And they said, oh, sorry, we looked it up and it's Cheryl's sister. She's a gynecologist. So we thought maybe it was her. Um, so that is forever written down that my 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 inspiration is a, is a I'm sure she's a fantastic gynecologist um, and sister of Cheryl. But uh, but no, I would actually say the longer I'm, I, I do this, the more I find I'm inspired by people who have tried and have given that all it doesn't matter if they failed or succeeded I find both incredibly inspiring and it makes you feel less alone to know other people have poured their heart and soul into something and even if it didn't work they go again they've 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 bounced back up for me those are the people that inspire me the most it's interesting because if you look at the real estate sector there is is definitely an unwillingness to to experiment and fail Mm. because failure is obviously regarded very negatively and I I think that sometimes gets in the way of innovation really. Completely agree yeah and the people who are willing to take that risk I just I just find yeah those are my role models. So where would you like to be five years from now? Global. Global. I want to be global I want it to be that you know already it's really exciting we got an email through the other day from from someone very much outside the normal realms of property development doing a big scheme who said you know so and so at the Ministry of Housing and Communities suggested we get in touch because we're doing this scheme and we need community engagement and I was like that's what I want on a global level that is the first thing you think of when you go to do a scheme and you think that the community should you know should have a voice which let's be honest they always should is you think built ID that's what I need that's what I want globally in five years brilliant well i think that's a great place to stop and very best wishes for we'll we'll watch and see what happens over the next five years thank you very much oh thank you so much for having me on well it was really refreshing to hear from savannah on how she's taken her idea and made it into reality taking the sometimes sedate world of real estate by storm on her way through so it'll be interesting to watch her continue the zigzag journey but I'm sure she's going to um, achieve what she wants to achieve and Property Week has named her as one to watch so watch this space very carefully well that's it for now I hope you enjoyed today's conversation please join us for the next Property Sheet podcast interview coming very shortly the Property Sheet podcast is brought to you by Mish Rea in association with the London Real Estate Forum and can be found at mishcon.com slash property along with all our interviews and program notes. The podcasts are also available to download on your Apple podcast app and on Spotify and whatever podcast app you use. And please do continue to let us have your feedback and comments and most importantly, suggestions for future guests. And of course, you can also follow me on Twitter at Property She for a regular commentary on all things real estate, prop tech and the built environment.